0: The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 24, Marvel Star Wars Part 4. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris-King, and in this episode, I am once again joined by the Confessor for the fourth part of our epic, multi-decade look at Marvel's classic Star Wars series. Over the course of this exhaustive review... We're looking at issues one through 107 plus all three annuals, as well as supplemental material from Pizzazz and from Marvel's UK Weekly. Last episode, the confessor and I discussed issues 39 to 63, covering the Empire Strikes Back adaptation by Archie Goodwin and Al Williamson, moving through the end of the Goodwin and Carmen Infantino run with issue 50, and. Continuing into the beginning of David Michelinie's run in the book with great art by Walt Simonson. In this episode, we're going to start by talking about annual number two. We'll also be looking at the unusual Star Wars stories that appeared only in Marvel's UK Weekly, including work by people such as Alan Moore. We'll continue our look at the David Michelini's run, and we'll move right into the beginning of the run by his noted successor, Joe Duffy. So without further ado, let's jump right into the action with Confessor and our look at Marvel's Star Wars. So this brings us up to the second annual.
1: The second annual is rubbish. <laughs>
0: yeah, the only thing I, the only note I have is that it's a Conan story. It's just set in the star Wars universe.
1: Right. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that kind of, that does kind of, um, uh, does kind of make sense. The, the thing that's interesting about this and I, I don't, you know, I don't know the story behind this annual at all. And I'd love to, because again, we've got Carmen Infantino art in this annual. And of course he's long gone. So, you know, it's, it, is this more inventory artwork or something that's being used? I mean, I don't think it's a case of it was a different series. It, I think it was hmm. drawn, you know, as a Star Wars thing. But of course, it's written by Michelini. Right. So I'd love to know what this is. Uh,
0: frankly, I don't really remember the story because I just I didn't it's really, care for yeah. it. It's, like, it's, really,
1: it's boring. Yeah. It's one of those ones you're reading it and you're thinking, how many pages have I got left to go? Uh, Well,
0: one thing that we uh, can't say about the Marvel UK weekly stories that were only published in Britain and not in the U.S. is we can't say they're boring. They're they're definitely not boring. Because this is the time period where you were getting those over there.
1: That's right. Again, and it was like the earlier Marvel uh, exclusive, um, UK exclusive Marvel issues. It was because we were using up too many of your American stories, you know. but it was decided this time that they would be actually created in the uk by uk talent you know rather than the u.s team which would have been micheline and simonson at that point um you know doing extra stuff and then shipping it over so what you get is some really interesting stuff like you know star wars stories as written by alan moore for instance which are range from absolutely insane to actually pretty good I think but they're, they're a real mixed bag I, I I don't know what you sort of what your feelings were about them
0: I thought they were mostly completely batshit nuts I didn't feel like most of them <laughs> were very Star Wars some of them were just like not even remotely Star Wars at all like they felt like like he had just dropped acid
1: to Lotny throws a shape in particular yeah uh, uh, my
0: note for that story is w t f with a big question mark
1: yeah it's a very strange one the thing about that that's really interesting there's two things about that story it's not a great story but there's two things that i find interesting about it firstly that he kills princess leia you know not. i mean he kills princess leia not not a, not a dream not an imaginary story he kills princess leia you know and you just think well, you know that what when you're reading it and of course through sort of time shifting kind of shenanigans um she she comes back or whatever and she ends up sort of back where she started but yeah a very very strange story but the other thing i was going to say with that particular story is that she falls over and hurts her leg and it's clear from when this is set that this is set a much earlier during what was the infantino
0: run ah okay so this this uh, might answer a question because there is a period way back in the infantino run where they make a reference to a right. Princess Leia adventure where she got injured and we never see what happened. No,
1: no that's right. And and it, there's a little thing where it's sort of like in the narration box, it says, oh, you know, Leah's is limping, isn't she? And she's got all her leg in bandage. And um, they basically say, oh, this was another adventure that we haven't had time to sort of, you know, to to get around to, but we will do in the future. And I don't know whether, knowing Alan Moore, you know, and what Alan Moore's like, I wouldn't be surprised if he was purposely trying to fill that gap and purposely trying to reference that old story.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick up on that when I read this, probably because it's yeah. so was written so much later. So, I, uh-huh. I mean, my notes on these in general is just they, they felt, as you say, they were done by British creators. They feel like very British stories. The first Alan Moore story, which I think is in issue 151, it felt to me much more like a Doctor Who style story than or even a Star Trek story than it did a, a Star Wars story. That's the one where they get sucked into the Bermuda Triangle in space and are and are tortured by the demonic space family.
1: Right, the uh, the Pandora effect, yeah. Um, I love that story. I think that's a, a great, great story, because what I like about it is it's, it's kind of Star Wars with horror, and I think that's the thing at its best, alan moore's stories there's a real horror kind of element to it which as a kid i just ate that up with a spoon it is a little bit less star warsy i think the pandora effect is pretty star warsy i have to say but it, it's sort of star wars with a slight horror flavor to it which we haven't really sort of seen in the run before and i admit i, I agree with you that it's very different
0: one thing i did like about it is that chewbacca saves the day there's a right. uh we see Chewbacca treated uh very nicely in when he appears in these stories here Chewbacca's maybe my favorite Star Wars character and it's a pet peeve of mine that he never seems to get any credit for the fact that he basically has saved the rebellion and the entire galaxy several times over the course of the movies Without mm. anyone noticing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, we
1: talked last time, didn't we, about the, about the medal and that, the, you know, that they actually addressed that in the, in, the, in the Marvel run, you know, that yeah. he did get the medal, yeah.
0: Um. And he saves the day in this specific Alan Moore story because, because he's overlooked.
1: Right. I'm right. not
0: sure it was intentional, like, meta-commentary, but he saves the day because the, because the bad guys just completely overlook him
1: that's right and also the, the it's like a force demon isn't it and it's
0: yeah there is a genie it's like a gin or something like a space gin.
1: i think it's called something like woodzek or something like that um but again it approaches him and it realizes that he's you know because they, they they essentially think he's a dumb beast they don't realize that he's you know can fly a starship and stuff like that they think he they and they lock him in a little menagerie don't they basically yeah i like this story a lot i think it's it, it is different and uh, the one before that,
0: issue one forty nine, is the, this is the first one with yeah, Death Mask by Steve I, Moore?
1: I love that issue as well. That again, it's very horror movie like. You know, there's lots of hallucinations and stuff. You know, Luke crashes on this planet and he sees like you know skulls everywhere and he sees um, apparitions of um, Leia and Han and Chewie all being killed and it's very sinister and it's all
0: and it's all being done by that little like uh, telepathic uh, death monkey
1: you think yeah, yeah right right with the reest is the uh, is the name of it um the, the little creature but it sits on his chest what i was going to say is he's almost like a little succubus mm-hmm. you know he he sits on, on on luke's chest and and gives him these visions which are really like the way that i've always thought of them. it's like an lsd trip you know but go, but like going bad, like a bad trip but again i really like so i really like that one you No, know, that was one we really talk about a lot um which is you know it's kind of interesting because it's not really you know obviously people in the u.s would never have seen it at the time um and i don't think it was published actually i don't think any of these were published in the u.s until like the 90s when dark horse put some of them out that's another nice one and uh, the other one i quite like is um the last one, which is Blind Fury, where Luke goes into the temple, and
0: one of them they forgot to publish the last page, the one where Vader oh, yeah. is playing chess with Death, basically.
1: That's right, uh, Dark Lord's conscience. Yeah, and again, so yeah, they—they they, it was just a mistake. They forgot to publish the um the, the last page, and the last page wasn't published until like the mid '90s when when Dark Horse published it. You know, I I, I sort of remember at the time thinking oh that's a weird ending <laughs> you know just thinking oh that, that's the ending oh okay
0: so when you were reading um, these as they were coming out were you aware of uh the difference like did did they did the tone like uh, jump out to you as being a, you know strange or unusual or or was it just part of you know it was just part of the run
1: yeah it's just it was just part of the run obviously the fact that they were a bit scarier and a bit creepier some of them that was, you know, oh, this is a bit different. But I had no idea that these were, at the time, I had no idea that, the, the, you know, people in the States weren't reading the same stories that I was. I, You know, I thought these were being published in, in America as well. You know, I just wasn't until much later I found out. Yeah, I like them. I, I think that they are a bit of a different take. Some of them are very un-Star Wars-y. Some of them are just nuts. I think the best of them actually hold up really well. There's also that one, you know, The Flight of the Falcon, which sort of tries to um, show how Han got the the Falcon and everything, which, you know, I, I guess must be kind of interesting to compare to Solo. The, the movie so
0: it's interesting i mean it, from a continuity standpoint it doesn't make any sense because it contradicts no. everything yeah, yeah, but it, but yeah. it is interesting
1: I, I think they're interesting i think people who are fans of the series who haven't read those should do themselves a favor and read them because the best of them are, are really good i think
0: well they're certainly better than a couple of the fill-ins that we got around this time back in the u.s mm. um mm. i mean 64 was written by Michelini so i guess it's technically not a fill-in it has a different art team and it feels like a fill-in where luke is on this like basically this planet filled with like medieval lizard people that are having a joust to determine who's going to become king uh that story i I just thought it was stupid
1: yeah i mean i so going back to your last question did i notice or think these things were different not with the english ones no when this came out when this issue came out sophidian a eyes or whatever it's called i hated it hated everything about it you know i was really really disappointed with it i hated the art as well i really really didn't like the art the sort of quasi medieval thing which actually we get to see a few times in the series going ahead they often come back to these kind of weird sort of sci-fi but basically medieval planets you know that was a was I hated that but I particularly hated the um the the artwork and it's Joe Brozowski I'm just looking at this now but I think it's the inking it's Vince Coletta isn't it it's it's the infamous (laughs) Coletta on inks and I remember when I when I, I don't know about you but when I was a when I was a young kid reading comics at this sort of age I didn't really I didn't really pay much attention to the credits really No
0: I I don't think I became aware of that until several years into my reading I think When you're reading stuff as a kid you're you're not necessarily aware even that you know people are making it I mean obviously someone's making it but you're not thinking about that you're just I, I, into the story Absolutely right
1: Absolutely right And uh, then you Al read Williamson. something like
0: this and you're like oh wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this it is it. It's matter. so different.
1: Yeah, this is it. This is it. it. It's so different, and it's so sort of substandard, really. That I um. But I always, I always remember that. I remember reading you like um. You know, people would badmouth Vince Coletta in the forum, and I had no idea who he was. Really, I sort of you know. I remember thinking, oh, I wonder what's so bad about his art, and um, I thought I'd just go on the old, uh, you know, the um. The grand comics database website and i went on there and i i thought i wonder if he did anything on star wars because i thought well that's a series i really know you know i really know that well and what is it that's so bad about these and sure enough ping this this issue comes up, I'm like, yeah, that art's terrible, and it's like, <laughs> suddenly I got it. I was like, right, Vince Coletta, Now I know why everybody doesn't like him. Yeah, but it, it's not just that, really. Actually, it's it's the story as well. It's
0: the story's the bad, movie. and it's been and it's it sort of points out how bad it is and why I think it, this is actually a fill-in issue, even though it's by McColini, because the next issue we get the regular team back, McColini writing, but we get Simonson and Palmer on the art.
1: Fleischer, it? it's actually it's Michael Fleischer. He, he he, um, I don't know if, if that's how you pronounce his name, but it's he. He plotted it. Michelini only scripted it. It's not really Michelini's story. Ah,
0: okay, that makes sense. Because the next issue, we're actually back to the storyline where we've got in issue sixty-five, we get a follow-up to the end of issue sixty-three, where Luke is on trial for, yeah. uh, and he presents the evidence showing that um, that Shira was actually uh, an Empire spy, and he's reinstated. Yeah. The other thing that happens in this issue is, I think this is not the first appearance of this guy, but we get this uh, reappearance of uh, Lieutenant Giel or Guile. I'm not sure, again, how to pronounce these names, but he's a an officer in the Empire who I find to, he's like a really interesting, for me, sort of stand-in for Vader because he's very different from Vader. He's sort of this cunning career military guy who mm. is just trying to advance um, in the empire and willing to do whatever he needs to, to do it. I I thought he was a cool bad guy. And again, I thought we were going to see more of him after this story, but we, we don't really see much of him.
1: No, um, this is a great, great issue though. Golrath never, never, never forgets. Of course they go back to the base that we saw uh, in the, uh, issue 50 the crimson forever issue um on the sort of volcanic sort of thing because they and i love that idea that they they find out that the base the walls of the base uh the, the stone that it's built out of has the ability to record images and they suddenly realize oh my god you know the whole abandoned base is like you know it could be accessed and, and sort of show the empire if the empire find out about it you know they'll find out about everything, you know yeah,
0: it'll be a complete uh, record of everything they've done
1: yeah and then They'd obviously be able to track them to Arp because they knew where the fleet went. You know, so that's a great. Uh, I like the setup there. Yeah, that's that's very um, very. Lieutenant Gill is a, is an interesting character, and again, one of those ones that's quite memorable.
0: Less memorable for me was the next issue, issue sixty six. We get another what to me feels like another take on the Seven Samurai. It's just this time it's Luke and there's a village and he's defending it and he beats the bad guy that the raider that's been like. I don't know. It it didn't feel very inspired and it's particularly unfortunate because it's the last regular issue by Simonson as an artist on the series.
1: Yeah and of course this this was a filling issue but um, it was written as a filling issue but I think actually Michelini managed to sort of tie it into what was going on. I like the issue, actually. I think it's kind of flawed. It was one at the time when it came out. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, really nice art in it, I think. Um, but also, I quite like the, uh, I forget her name, but, you know, the sort of the, the female character.
0: I mean, it's a, it's a fine issue. It's just... I was really enjoying uh, the ongoing storylines. so uh, And I feel like, as a whole, the, this series, Star Wars, suffered more from fill-in issues than just about any comic I've ever read. It seemed like any time... They would get any kind of momentum going with storylines. There were just fill-in issues in every, not just uh, Michelini's run, but Goodwin's run had tons of fill-ins, and we're going to see Joe Duffy's run is basically derailed at the end by some really ill-advised yeah. fill-ins. And uh, I don't know how much of that was because of editorial interference or how much of it was because the writers were doing, you know, from uh, periodically doing adaptations or... Stuff for other media than the comic, but boy, a lot of fill-ins. So it's just disappointing when you're invested in the main storyline and you get, you know, a, just another space story.
1: I think it depends where they come, doesn't it? It's like that one we were just talking about with the, the um, with the really nasty-looking art on it. Because that, because of where that comes out in the run, yeah. it sort of interrupts like that sort of yeah. coda. You have this, you have this
0: great, uh, the the yeah. best story in the run, and then your fault is... Yes. It's like I don't know if you are an Avengers fan. One of the all-time great storylines and and periods in the book is the, is the um, the Korvac saga. And in issue 177, after this huge buildup of all these issues, there's this giant battle sequence where all the Avengers are killed, and then at the end they're all brought back to life. And uh, but the last page is everyone's basically just barely alive and. Dr Don Blake is trying to bring them you know revive them all and this tr- horrible you know trauma that's been like 10 issues has just happened right right and then there's three fill-in issues in a row and they're, oh. they're like the worst stories <laughs> the first 20 years of Avengers is issues 178, 179 and 180 and it's such right. a huge disappointment we you don't get any of the fallout from what happened in 177 until you get issue 181 four months later. right, And um, that's kind of what this felt like with issue 64 and then some Agreed. of these other fill-ins where you had a lot of momentum and then it's like, yeah, this the Pariah story is so great and then you get the fill-in and then you get one good issue again and then you get another fill-in, you get the annual and it's like, oh, we were we were doing so well here for, <laughs> for a little <laughs> yeah. while.
1: Uh, I agree, I agree. I think that's the thing with the fill-in issues. Some of the fill-in issues are great you know, this is the thing, and I guess that is the nature of filling issues. They they are hit and miss. It's interesting you say that you think the series had more than p- pretty much any other series you've you've read. I mean, yeah, I'd never really thought about it like that, but maybe yeah. I mean, maybe you're right, but um, but then some of those filling issues are amazing, you know, um, really really good, and then others are, are less so, and then of course you get ones that are not only not that great, but they also interrupt the flow of what's going on. But uh, but there you have it.
0: So after Um, this, we get another one-off. I don't know if it was a film, and it's the first issue with Ron Friends on art. The
1: Dark story, because that's one that focuses in on the droids and on Chewie.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting team-up. Because, you know, in in the Star Wars and the movies and stuff, Chewie actually spends a lot of time with the droids. And, And even in the comic, there's a lot of stories where it's like, hey, uh, the main characters are going to do do this. So, Chewie, you and the droids uh, watch the ship for us. Um, and so this is right, kind of like what right. these guys, what they're getting up to while the other main characters are sort of taking them for granted. And it's a story where Chewie, you know, saves everybody, uh, as he so frequently does, and then and nobody even notices that they're gone, basically.
1: <laughs> right, right. And Cliff's in it as well. Pl- yes, Pliff's and as well. Pliff's So it's So like, it. it's like an issue that focuses in on on all these sort of like characters that don't really get much of a look in. And it's a nice issue. I like the darker. It's always been a a bit of a, you know, it's it's not a great issue. It's flawed, but it's one that uh, has a lot of sentimental. I have a lot of a sentimental attachment to it. I like it more than I should do. You know, it's. um, Yeah, I like it. I, I just
0: like these characters getting the spotlight Uh, As I've mentioned, you know, several times, I feel like Chewie gets taken for granted in the Star Wars universe, but not just by the fans and by the writers, but also by the other characters. And this is this story actually kind of plays off of that and plays it up a little bit where, you know,
1: it does. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, the
0: The other characters, they don't give him the credit he deserves. And I think it's because of how he looks and because they can't understand him. Like, Han's the only one that takes him seriously because Han's the only one that can understand mm. what he's saying.
1: I agree, yeah. And I, I again, it, it, there's a little bit of a sort of a... a little bit of a horror thing creeping in here as well, you know, in this issue, because they go off to this... sort of down this unexplored, uh, you know, uh, a part of the rebel base in this sort of... down these tunnels, and they find this sort of abandoned city. I think the art is fantastic in this issue. I think it's a great debut for Ron Friends, who...
0: There's definitely horror elements because they're basically fighting a psychic a vampire but because of that, it (laughs) it actually again felt kind of like a conan story but not not in a bad way
1: yeah i think i think really that this is uh, the difference in that you're picking up this and, and i don't so much is because i think i read these at the time as a kid and i think i just accepted it yes i see what you're saying and you're probably right but i sort of uh, I tend to sort of view it more as, for me, I guess I, what I'm saying is that because of comics like this, I think Star Wars can have horror elements like that. And that's sort of almost how I view Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, done, yeah,
0: I know what you mean. That's
1: perfectly within the realms of Star Wars, as far as I'm concerned, even though you don't get that in the movies.
0: It's an interesting point. I think we might have talked about it last time, but how since you came to this, like this was creating Star Wars for you. So this was just as much as part of the Star Wars universe as the movies. Absolutely. this was
1: star wars you know it was it was this it was this and it was playing with your star wars kenner toys you know that on a day-to-day basis that was star wars between the movies you know that's i think that's what you have to remember about the about the marvel series that it was it was important to people i think who were of that generation you know because it was your daily or weekly or monthly fix of star wars you know
0: so after several sort of Mm. one-off issues here we get what when I was reading it, I thought, "Oh, here we go! Strap in, because we've got an, our next big storyline <laughs> coming up." But actually, it turns out this two-parter is the last story of Michelini' run, and it this it says right at the beginning of issue sixty-eight, "The search for Han Solo begins." They're gonna mm. they split up and they they start going out looking for the different bounty hunters because. They know that somewhere these bounty hunters know where Han Solo is taken, so they're going to track them down. Now, this is this issue is coming out less than a year before Return of the Jedi, so when I was reading this for the first time, I thought, here we go, we're setting up Return of the Jedi with this, this story. Actually... That does not turn out to be the case, but it's a no, really interesting no. story where we get we get some new characters introduced that become important later on, and we get this great fake out where you think it's Boba Fett on the cover, and the, mm-hmm. but it turns out there's actually some other Mandalorian soldiers that were compatriots of Boba Fett, and I thought this was a really interesting story, but also it features art by Gene Day and i thought the art in here was really good I, yeah it's fantastic like, man you know we had talked a little bit about gene day because he did some inking um, he, put,
1: he did for yeah infantino yeah and that was and a i never f- liked his i never really liked weird mix anything. yeah it's very yeah, strange it was. very but, strange mix
0: man but, him penciling yeah. this so good
1: with tom palmer over the top doing the inks and you know i think i think maybe doing some of the finished art as well uh yeah it's brilliant uh, I, I love this. And, and again, this was an issue when this issue came out in the, in the UK, it was, it was a big, big talking point between me and all my friends. Cause we all bought the star Wars comic, you know, we all read it religiously and we would talk about it. And it was one that was really because of the Mandalorian super commandos, you know, this, this really gave us a lot of, you know, they, they took like a uh, took what a, a little fragment of information that was in the novelization about uh, of, of the Empire Strikes Back about, Boba Fett and and the Mandalorian super commandos, and we really ran with it, and it's yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. The the Gene Day art is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just really stunning. It's a great great story because this is a this is the beginning of a long arc, and they sort of changed horses mid stream. Yes, it? you get, uh, it's the end of David Michelini's run on it. And it's the beginning of Joe Duffy. I mean, I tend to sort of call it really like it's the search for Hans Solo, But actually within that, you've got like the Mandalorian arc, which is this issue and next.
0: I have this broken up into two different arcs uh, for, for that reason, because it is part of sort of a bigger storyline. But there's a, a very clear dividing line because with issue 70, there's a flashback issue that at first just seems like it seemed like a fill-in but it's not because once you come out of the flashback into issue 71 it's the flashback in issue 70 was actually setting up the next part of the storyline and it goes right into the present day stuff with 71 and 72.
1: that's right uh the story the flashback like the one like the flashback of han and chewie in the issue number 50 that comes in forever actually was an earlier story
0: so you're saying that after joe duffy did that fill-in issue which was a spotlight on it was a flashback for obi-wan kenobi she had written this uh flashback but they ended up using it to kickstart her run
1: well this is it she wrote it but and there was on the on the letters page they they touted it like you know before this is back during the when infantino run it was like oh and you know joe duffy will be back in a few months time with a new story um you know with artwork by Kerry Gamill and all the rest of it. And Of course, it never materialised. So clearly, that was just never used. Probably because you know the Empire Strikes Back came out and this sort of, sort of the status quo changed. You know, and the story no longer fitted. You know, with with continuity. So of course, when Joe Duff became um, came on board as the regular writer, she probably thought, Ah, you know, I can I can use that that story that we did all those years ago and that is that's the origin of that issue but of course she takes those characters and really runs with them
0: since we're at this dividing point where Michelinie leaves the book with 69 and Joe Duffy takes over with issue 70 right in the middle of it's sort of two parts but two different storylines yeah
1: it's a, to me it's it's one arc I, I know what you're saying it's two there is two parts to it but it's it's the search for Han Solo it is you know yeah but it's interesting isn't it that it, they change? They change writer right
0: in the middle of it, but and the direction. I, I felt like the direction changed. Like uh, where I thought that story was going with Michelini, it takes a, a left turn. So I thought this might be a good place to sort of talk about uh legacy on the book, but also discuss a little bit the differences in writing styles between Michelinie and Joe Duffy. Because as I mentioned earlier, I think they had very different approaches to the series as a whole. Yeah,
1: go on. <laughs> yeah, so what I mean by that is, as I said earlier,
0: Michelinie, uh, he seemed to be taking stuff uh, out of the movies and out of the books. He... His stories were grounded in the Star Wars universe where there was a lot of jumping off points for, you know, characters uh, like the Mandalorians here that we see in 68 and ideas like the Tarkin, which was the idea of having another Death Star. Right, But also like the plot lines, like the search for, for Han Solo and some of the earlier things that he did, they felt like it felt like it was inside the Star Wars universe. Joe Duffy's run to me, especially more towards the end, but even even earlier on, it feels like she is doing her own thing inside the star within the Star Wars universe. Uh rather than rather than having the stories come out of established canon, she was sort of doing her own storylines that intersected with the star wars universe uh we're gonna see again we'll see it a lot more later on but right at the beginning she introduces the characters of Rick and Danny and Cheeto and Danny in particular, mm-hmm. but all of them are going to become major characters that run through the whole story. And in a, in I think in a significant way, she's really telling the story of her own characters. And so the main characters like uh, Luke and Leia are, I don't want to say they become supporting characters in their own series, but because she's very limited by the demands of Lucasfilm on what she can do with those characters, the, the real changes in character development and growth are with the supporting cast that she brings in and so the the Star Wars elements all, almost seem in some ways to be incidental to me during Joe Duffy's run as opposed to central as they were in Michelinie's run
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree that they were they, they, they were sidelined at that in that way I think you're absolutely right particularly later on in the run yes absolutely the, the, the cast we all know and love you know Luke Khan, Leia whatever you know they 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 very much become like co-stars in their own book and that's part of you know i'm jumping ahead but that's part of what goes wrong at the end of the run yeah that's an interesting point i accept what you're saying there that actually i think i think really the thing is duffy's stuff i think is very actually i think is very uh rooted in star wars but i think you you've hit the nail on the head that actually yeah she's well, I guess she's much better than uh, Michelinis at bringing in memorable characters like Danny. I think actually, the, I think you're doing Duffy a disservice there by saying that she's not drawing stuff from Star Wars. I think she had a very, very good handle on, on, on Star Wars. And there are instances where, just like Michelinis, she sort of preempts Return of the Jedi and gets slapped down by Lucasfilm and set, told, you've got to change that because it's too close to what we're doing in the next film.
0: There's points where I felt like she was really trying to do some interesting stuff with Star Wars and then those elements suddenly vanish, which I'm pretty sure was the hand of Lucasfilms telling her not to go there. Uh, it's not that I think she didn't have a good handle on it, because I think she did. I just think by as her run goes along... She's less and less able to do what she wants to do with the Star Wars universe. Mm. And she's sort of forced into just sort of going off into left field. Um, Yeah,
1: absolutely. Certainly, certainly post Return of the Jedi. I know for a fact from things I've read of hers that she's written. that yeah, Lucasfilm got ever more, you know, demanding for want of a better word.
0: But uh, getting back to the Search for Han Solo storyline that ran through issue 72. What did you think about that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think it's a tremendous story. I think the whole Stenex saga um, is is really is a great story. Great, great art in it, and memorable characters. I loved the trio of um, of you know Rick, Duel, and and Danny, and um, uh, uh, and Cheeto. You know, I think were, were great, and I love the whole kind of you know. There's that big fake out where you think they found Han Solo you think that they've actually found him and it turns out that it's actually Cheeto in Carbonite. Um, I love that. You know, as a kid, when I was reading that, that's, that was edge of your seat gripping. You know, that was really like, oh my God, you know, they've actually found Han Solo, you know, um, you know, and it's, I think that's brilliant. I think that's some great writing. I think that's some really good writing from Duff.
0: One thing that I really liked about the, the trio of Rick, Danny and Cheeto is that they felt like funhouse mirror of our main characters and so they i thought they were really good for our group to play off against because yep. they they have sort of in a way, they have their own—they have their own story that we just don't know about yet. And so they have their histories together and their interactions together, and you can tell they're sort of this interesting unit. And so it's almost like our characters in their Star Wars saga are intersecting with these characters that are in the middle of their own saga, and we're just seeing this one little part of their story. So I, I really like them. I actually felt as we'll talk about this more as we go along i am not that big of a fan of Danny by herself I like her in in this role with the group but when we lose Rick and Cheeto later on and she becomes sort of a solo focus uh, i I just don't care for her character as much I think she works better as part of this group okay yeah, that's I, kind I know of, a yeah. lot of I know a lot of people love Danny uh, so that's probably I'm probably in a minority on this one.
1: I liked what what I like about her is the way that once she separates off from the from the others and becomes like this sort of you know tag along co star, it's the dynamic between her and Leia. You know that's what really makes it. That is that's the magic. You know that's where the magic is in the character. I think what you're saying about them being they feel like a very fleshed out gang trio. You know Rick and Cheeto and and Danny. When you when you meet them straight away, you sort of think yeah they they seem to belong together. They seem fully fleshed out, you know.
0: Well, after um, the end of this story, we get uh, to speak to your point exactly. Issue 73 is a story where Danny and Leia sort of the two of them team up in this uh, spotlight issue and we really see them playing off of each other. This is sort of what I was talking a little bit about in terms of Joe Duffy featuring her own characters where she introduces the, this new group in this storyline. And then immediately, you know, we're just going to keep Danny writing the book and, and have her play off Leia. And I mean, it works, it works. Uh, I like the story.
1: It's a funny issue. I think I remember as a kid really cracking up reading it. It was a very, very funny issue when it, when it first came out. And I think the two things about this issue that are kind of interesting and, and sort of important are the Lars They're like little munchkin cats things but they turn into these huge um yes. huts these, these huge monsters when they reach maturity when they go through puberty it's like a really violent puberty it's a bit like sort of uh, spock with the whole kind of pon thing but um but like you know on steroids kind of thing they just they turn into these huge huge creatures
0: i like that and then we also have an instance uh, of joe duffy sort of anticipating the movies again
1: she designs these 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 your comes up with these these little little kind of furry creatures who fly on these uh, stick and, and animal skin just like the ewoks like, yeah yeah know, they are and lucas apparently originally they looked much more like ewoks as well and lucasfilm said no, no no you can't do that and um
0: and in and some ways they're, they're more interesting than ewoks because as you say when they're uh sort of kids they're actually uh, really nice and cute and cute, fluffy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and they're they're intelligent, you know, it's not like, you know, human children which are children. They they act like, you know, they they come fully formed. It's just when they hit puberty, they basically turn into the Wendigo and start, you know, eating everybody. <laughs> so in a way, yeah, I think they're actually more interesting than the Ewoks because they have everything the Ewoks have going for them too. It's just they also have this added thing. This sort of ticking time bomb which we see explode in the two or three different stories
1: yeah and it's always really played for like for laughs yes. um, uh, and again it's very memorable this is the thing i think about duffy I, I i totally agree with what you're saying she brings in all these characters but they're very very memorable you know the the whole thing with the with the 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 lars that then turn into the aggressive huge you know fanged kind of monsters it's really striking it, it just sticks in the mind you know you don't forget these characters even if you haven't read the issues for a long time you know and that's that's something i do sort of like about her um the other thing i was going to say about this issue is that this is also the beginning of the tay vanis story which yes lead in a very nice lead in to return of the jedi yeah uh, so
0: that that's a good point so as i mentioned when with issue 68, we get this search for Solo, which I thought was going to be the lead into Return of the Jedi. Instead, we get a storyline which doesn't initially seem like it's going to lead into Return of the Jedi, but by the end, they, they make it fit. And that is, there are these um, missing spies for the rebellion that have this key information that they need. And so our heroes are out searching for them, trying to find them. And they, they spend several issues looking for them. This is the first issue of them. But in the next arc, uh, issues 74 to 76, we get the world, the water world of Escalon and Luke is, goes there and meets what's going to turn out to be a major character for the rest of Joe Duffy's run, which is Kiro.
1: And just to say about Tavanis, about of course, this is obviously something that was taken from the shooting script. I mean, meanwhile, you know, at this stage, the, the adaptation of, of Return of the Jedi is being, is being done. The, the tapes that, that they have—it's the plans for the Death Star, isn't it? Essentially, it's—it's it's, you know we're in *Return of the Jedi* when they're talking about, um, or well, many Bothans died to,
0: to right? In. Yes
1: this is what it is so they obviously had information about that by this point and they're writing it into story and it's a much
0: so much better than the lead-in there's basically no lead-in into Empire this does a much better job they they do a much better job in general but as we're going to see later on once they get to the point where the Return of the Jedi is out and the Return of the Jedi adaptation is out there's a a couple issues of the main series that come out after the Return of the Jedi starts and then they're able to just directly link in the last couple of issues to that story and it just reads so much smoother than the mess at the uh, going into issue 39
1: into the Empire Strikes Back yeah part of that was because they decided Marvel decided to have Return of the Jedi as a standalone miniseries rather than trying to have it as regular issues and I understand that the thinking behind that was that oh, hey, we can have two Star Wars comics on the on the shelf every month, you know, rather than one. I think it was as simple as that, you know. But it did, the upshot of it is that it did allow the the main story and the main series to dovetail into Return of the Jedi in a much more organic way, which oh, I loved. I really appreciated that as a kid, you know. I thought that was...
0: So it. the story, uh, in issues 74 to 76, we get this water world, and there's like a twin planet... Luke is there because there's a signal that the you know the Teyvanis or his partner, whose name I'm forgetting, might be on the planet with Yom the information. Argo,
1: is it Yom Argo? Is that right? I yes, think right.
0: I think that's right. They discover that they, they, he's not there, but there. What Luke does find is this this race of these fish people who are a really interesting race because they basically have a school. Mm, like a fish kind of. yes, yes yeah, yeah and so they have someone who's their leader but he doesn't really lead so much as just express the will of the school and th- mm. there, there's some really interesting stuff done with this later on in a much later arc where they get into the the mentality of of what that's like for how they think but the important part here is that luke's trying to get them to join the alliance and there's actually sort of like Uh, betrayal, some of the fish people get killed, and the the important part for me is that Luke gets introduced to this character Kiro, who is sort of a very odd character for this world, because he actually doesn't follow the will of the school. He has his own individual mind, and he's sort of this warrior guy who's very, very clearly and heavily uh, influenced by manga in terms of his design as a character, not just visually, but just in general and he ends up helping luke and as we see later on it turns out we're going to find out that he actually has some ability some connection to the force and he wants to become uh luke's apprentice
1: yeah uh, i mean kyra is a uh, kira is a is a great Uh, a great character the the escalon saga as a whole is a really really good probably one of the standout sort of little arcs of 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 duffy's run really and and it's quite dark as well you know when the when the um you know the empire set off the bomb that destroys pavilion destroys this uh, this aquatic under underwater sort of um uh city and the sort of carnage that you see and then the, the fact that there are like predators feeding off of these corpses and stuff like that it's it, it gets quite dark and um, and of course by the end of the of the of the Escalon uh, saga they really fail
0: yeah it, the mission ends in, in total failure uh, the yeah. Empire has destroyed the city the as a result the Escalonians have decided to turn their back on any kind of contact with any outsiders their twin planet uh, has basically been completely destroyed. Uh, mm. There's another planet that that doesn't have the Ischalonians on it, but there's another race that they're sort of like have this barter system, whatever. They've been completely wiped out, like total genocide. That planet's gone. Yeah, dead. It's just a dead planet. And uh, yeah. the only thing got out cool. of it is that he's friends with Kiro. My first issue was 95. It was right in the like Kiro is a main character in the first arc that I read. And so he was my favorite character in the series as a kid. To speak to your point, we've talked about a few times about how this is just Star Wars for people who read it. That was what it was like for me, you know, starting with issue 95. The characters like Kiro were just as real in terms of being Star Wars characters as any of the other characters. Because, I mean, it says Star Wars on it. It's an official Star Wars thing. So these are, you know, these are real Star Wars characters. Why wouldn't they be?
1: The other interesting thing is that Duffy came up with the idea of Kiro first, like the other Iskalonians were designed around Kiro. And he's very, D- Joe Duffy, which is kind of interesting for the time period, is, was very, very into, you know, manga and sort of uh, anime, uh, Japanese, um, you, you know, sort of comics and and things like that, which he didn't really get a lot of in um you didn't really see much of that in mainstream american comics of that time period and she really sort of brought a little bit of that and you see this again you know she really loves that kind of japanese or quasi japanese sort of look and she brings a lot of that into it which is sort of interesting really
0: yeah we're gonna see a lot of that later on when we Mm. uh, get to to knife and Den Shiva. there's a yeah the like nagai and the, yeah yeah there there's like yeah the nagai there's there's so much anime influence yes. uh at yeah. the end of the run but this this is a really good story and i was a big fan of, of kiro i think he's a really interesting addition uh issue 77 the only note i have is that it was goofy if i'm remembering right this is the issue where leia ends up becoming uh, like a lounge singer
1: yeah it is goofy it's not bad it? It, but it's just no it's, a, it's, it's, it's
0: actually a nice sort of tonal change after like you said the, mm. the previous arc was very grim um, it was and this is dark. just this yeah. is just straight up comedy here uh one thing about this issue i want to mention in terms of being funny is that it's actually funny because later on in the run joe duffy had a number of comedy issues that were not funny they yeah, became very right. tedious but this is actually this is actually a fun issue.
1: Yeah I think that she was able to write uh, a lot of comedy. I mean there's proper belly laughs when you're reading it. It still sort of feels like Star Wars. The other thing is with this you really get to see like Danny's kind of attraction to to Luke. And it's sort of interesting that Luke always like sort of resists her sort of sexual advances, you know. I mean Danny is such an overtly sexual character and she's so sort of I mean she basically puts it On a plate, and that's because of her race. You know, as as you know, if you've read the the comic, she's a Zeltron, and the Zeltron race, male and female, are both. You know, they're 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 like a race of nymphomaniacs, basically. But but it's interesting to me that Luke never once takes advantage of that.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that you mention the Zeltrons because we're going to see more Zeltrons later on, and the fact that Zeltrons they have this extreme sexuality as part of their racial makeup it mm. it's interesting there's a subtext here i think where there's a couple things that i might be reading into it but there's a subtext the other characters do not take them seriously because of their sexuality particularly in this specific way where danny is trying to explain to luke constantly throughout the series that she's interested in him not because she's a zeltron but because of who he is and nobody really believes her because of because of the fact that she's a zeltron that, or like her emotional life is not treated seriously she's treated by the other characters like a bit of a joke in this like they don't they don't take her emotions seriously i don't
1: think no she's sort of treated like you know like a, a, like a bit of a floozy, basically
0: yeah, Let's, so it's it's interesting, in a way, Luke is the only one that actually takes her seriously because he refuses her advances, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, I,
1: I know what you're saying, and of course it transpires that she's part of the reason she's attracted to Luke is that Zeltrons are naturally attracted to Force users. So that's revealed a bit later on.
0: I, I find the Zeltrons to be interesting fr- from that perspective, where it, it's almost in a, in a different way the same problem that Chewbacca has where the other characters don't take, they don't treat him seriously because of outward appearances. Uh, Which, you know, in a broader sense, actually goes back to the thing with the droids that Archie Goodwin is. There's there's a theme Mm. of this. And when you really look at, think about it, when you start thinking about how the characters, the main characters even, treat droids and, and Chewbacca and the Zeltrons, there's this, there's a real strong thing where people are judged by how they look in the Star Wars universe, which you wouldn't think would be the case given how many weird alien races there are.
1: Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, to me, I think it's just, I don't know, I guess it's, it's just the way that the world is as we know it. So that's just sort of extrapolated out. But it's an interesting point. It's particularly, I'm, I think that's interesting that you're saying that she's not taken seriously because of her, you know, kind of, you know, hyper sort of sexualized kind of nature. I'd never really thought about it in that way. Because um, very often, it's, of course, it's played for laughs, isn't it? This is the thing. It's it's not like Duffy really labours the point in any kind of, you know.
0: No, uh, you're right. It, it's yeah. definitely, it, it is played for laughs uh, right up until all of a sudden she becomes like a tragically depressed figure at the end of the right. run. And when That's that right. happens, uh, even though I have got some issues with that, it kind of makes you re-examine how the character has been portrayed in the previous storylines, Uh, at least it did for me
1: yeah i would agree with that um uh, the thing is with the zeltrons i again it all comes down to danny for me i think danny's really interesting character i like her a lot other zeltrons that you meet in the series they're kind of annoying you know and it's for me you know and that's that's the thing i think danny's a great character and the, the sort of dynamic the way she interacts with both luke and with leia but the other thing is that i think that you know i was saying about that Luke.
0: He never takes advantage of the opportunity that is presented to him numerous times with great enthusiasm.
1: Right, and, and, and really he has no, it's already been established by this point that you know, Han is the one for Leia so he's kind of on his own, like it, there's no reason on earth why he shouldn't hook up with Danny, you know, of course he's the hero. So you, you know, you sort of feel, well, okay, he shouldn't be a sleazebag, you know, he should be a bit of a, a bit of a sort of thing, but I think there's a, there's a, uh, there's an additional layer here as well. That I think that Duffy kind of understood her audience. And I think that it's very much like that, uh, you know, kissing girls is, is icky. It's that kind of, she's writing to sort of 10 year old sort of thing, you know, um, I
0: think you're right. Uh, I also think there's some editorial stuff going on here with lucasfilm um and i say that because of where we know the danny storyline is gonna suddenly go out of nowhere
1: Mm, um
0: mm. i'm pretty sure that that was editorially mandated that she's not to end the, the romance potential with luke that's just a guess but i i think that's one of the other reasons that luke is constantly turning her down and we never see luke really with anybody uh, is because she just wasn't allowed to to develop Luke in a character in that way.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I think that's absolutely. But again, you know, it's played very much for laughs. You know, he turns her down, but it's the source of much humor. Is he? You know, he feels really uncomfortable, and she's like all over him and being really passionate. And uh, you know, it is that sort of. You know, like the girl in the treehouse kind of thing. And it's like, oh, you know, she wants to play Kiss Chase. It's that sort of thing as well, you know.
0: So after issue 77, the Return of the Jedi adaptation started being published, but the continuity in the main story here doesn't catch up to the beginning of Return of the Jedi until the end of issue 80. It started being published around here and it becomes important because when we get to issue 79 and 80, we're going to see some stuff that's directly setting up Return of the Jedi. Because by the time they got to writing issue 79 and 80, they already knew, they had already written Return of the Jedi, so they knew how to set it up directly.
1: Yeah, and in fact, actually, by the time you get to issue 80, I mean, Return of the Jedi had been out in cinemas for a good sort of six months, so Yeah it was yeah
0: so 78 is a fill-in issue that features wedge and there's (laughs) several issues i had with this because it just didn't make any sense i I mean i'm glad i was happy to see a wedge solo story uh yeah it's just that.
1: what a shame it was such a disaster (laughs) yeah
0: and and the main problem is he's described as though he's actually biggs yeah Uh, it's
1: a a total mess i mean it's really this issue is like the poster child for people who want to knock the uh the the marvel run and say it's rubbish you know it's it's not in keeping with lucas's aesthetic or vision or whatever but yeah this is pretty much like the poster child for that really it's i wonder how this issue not only snuck past marvel editorial but also like lucasfilm they would have read this script and you'd have thought somebody would have been oh hang on a minute no 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 you've got these two characters confused you know
0: Yes, I don't think we need to talk about this issue too much. It's just it's it's a real disappointment, and it doesn't make any sense.
1: And it doesn't play into any of the rest of the thing either. It's a real done in one. Uh, You know, you could skip it, and you you'd not miss a thing. It's really poor. The art's not great. I mean, it's really got very little um, sort of you know redeeming features. Really, like you say, it's a shame because to have a story about Wedge is like potentially oh that's a really interesting uh, thing. But yeah, it's such a mess.
0: On the other hand, we get issue seventy-nine, which I thought was was a really fun issue, and it also helps us set up the story where Lando is and Chewie are out searching for Han, and they um the, in this story they get the lead to find out that he has been taken to Jabba the Hut. But we also a bunch of stuff happens in this story. We get uh, this this is an ongoing thing where. Lando, when he gets in trouble, he identifies himself as Captain Drebble uh, instead of as himself. We get that yeah. here, and he also disguises himself as a pirate that happens to look exactly like Captain Harlock. Another right, right. Callback more manga the, sort of. Yeah, kind more of, yeah. manga stuff. What I liked about that was less the Captain Harlock reference, but y- having Lando in this elaborate disguise for no apparent reason, it, it's not just in keeping this character but it also helps sort of in a really subtle way set up return of the jedi because when we see Absolutely. him he's wearing this elaborate costume he has Absolutely. at least at least he has a reason for 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 that one um but i i just i thought it was really fun to where he's like yeah let me come up with this really elaborate unnecessarily goofy scheme because basically he just wants to dress up like a pirate
1: right um and i think actually he in his captain Dribble... um Outfit. I think he looks really cool. I've always, you know, I, I've re- always thought that was like one of the coolest looks in the whole series. Um, yes, okay, it's really ripped off of, um, as you say, uh, Captain Harlock, uh, which is like a, an old Japanese anime thing, isn't it? But um, I, I think it's a really great, a really great disguise. Something I would just say that we didn't really touch on was that the 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 real Drebble, the real character Drebble, was somebody that we met. Back in the Stenex saga, uh, th- this kind of—that's
0: um, right. Back in the story issues seventy-one and seventy-two.
1: Yeah, uh, and he's—he's he's sort of—it's somebody that obviously Lando Calrissian has a history with, and there's this grudge between them, and and
0: yeah, Lando's got this grudge against this Captain Treble, uh, Drebel So what he does is he, whenever he does something that's going to get himself in trouble, he identifies himself as captain Drebble in the hopes that this will catch up with him and his enemies will actually take down captain Drebble instead of himself. And uh, we see this set up a couple times and it's going to have a really interesting and fantastic <laughs> payoff later on in the series.
1: Um, and again, Drebble, what a, what a, what a memorable character. I mean, one of the most memorable characters, I think from the from the whole run. And again, you know this is Duffy, you know yes she's bringing in these characters but they're you know her her success rate at least at this point in the run is very very good you know these are these are really strong striking characters that that stick with the reader you know that you sort of remember
0: yeah i agree the other thing that happens in this issue as part of the plot there are these statues uh, that everyone's these pirates are looking for. Cause they're supposed to be super valuable. It turns out mm-hmm. that Lando has got it on the ship the whole time. And he's like, I don't know. It seems like a, mi- sort of seems like a minor punchline at the end where he's like, I had it all along, but it actually Duffy does a really good job of bringing these little things back later on mm. where they have mm. more significance. And these statues and their true value are going to come up again much later there's going to be a payoff to that setup.
1: Yeah. Um, I, 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 this is a really fun issue. I, I think um, I, uh, I, again, I really enjoyed this. Interestingly, just as a sort of an aside, really, there's a, when they're having this uh, really sort of uh, intense car chase, or land speeder chase through the city, there's um, a page where they stop and, you know, there's a woman of the, uh, a lady of the night, shall we say, uh, that they, that they talk to just briefly. When this was published in the UK, they actually censored that out.
0: That hmm. like
1: they thought it was too, um, yeah. We didn't get that page. Um, they just took that entire page out because they, I guess they just figured that you know having a prostitute in the um,
0: <laughs> a, the long hand of Margaret Thatcher strikes again.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah, this is uh, this is that's that's probably the worst thing she did. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so then um, we get issue
0: eighty. So oh, th- this this is that. this is a really good one. Oh,
1: great issue. Great, great issue. Uh, loved it at the time. Love it now. Really super poignant, really well written, and a fantastic uh, conclusion to the to the whole sort of Tate vannis
0: Yeah, so uh, our, our heroes have been searching for Tate vannis for like eight issues at this point. They finally find him, and he's basically been tortured into oblivion.
1: It's a very dark uh, issue. V- very
0: dark, yeah. He has uh, this droid companion who is basically in love with him and um, at the end she sacrifices herself and sort of kills both of them
1: to, to end his suffering essentially. To end his
0: suffering yeah it was it was really uh, to me it was like a classic sci-fi sort of robot love story I've seen these tropes before but I thought it was really well done it was very powerful and this version of Vader where he sort of leaves this message He's like, I knew for Luke and them, he's like, I knew you guys would eventually find him. And so uh, I just left him here uh, as sort of, uh, you know, enjoy. Uh, he just basically mm. tortured this guy just to show what an asshole he is. Um, yeah. Vader felt very sadistic and evil in this comic in a way that we didn't see very often. This is a very different Vader, for instance, from issue 47 where he's on the banker world, like, uh, trying to out plot, you know, Leia. No, no, this, this is Vader. This, this is Vader yeah. Issue 80. Now it is a little bit interesting where this, the next issue, this leads directly into the events of return of the Jedi. So the next time we see Vader, he switches sides, but in terms of like great issue and they get the tapes. So, because I think if I remember right, the droid had the tapes,
1: yeah, that's right. She has them in a, in a kind of compartment in her chest,
0: So uh, I they, they get the tapes to set up Return of the Jedi. So at, at the end of this issue, they've got the tapes and they know where Han Solo is because we found out in the last issue that he was taken to Jabba the Hutt. So everything's set up for, for the Return of the Jedi. Again, the, sto- the issues have already come out. The movie's already been out, but it, it takes place after issue 80 before issue 81 is where that story slots in. So they did a really good job of get of working everything to the point where it felt like a much more natural fit.
1: Yeah. Uh, and just to touch on something that you just said there about that they now know that, um, you know, uh, uh, uh Boba Fett has taken Han to, to, uh, Tatooine uh, to, to Jabba the Hutt. Um, one of the criticisms I see a lot, it, it, you know, of, of the Marvel series is that, well, why didn't they just go straight to Tatooine? But actually, it really, I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the real reason is because they had three years of comics to make. <laughs> um, yeah. um,
0: but as you pointed out to me, Lando in Empire Strikes Back says he'll let them know if he finds Han. So we, we know that there's going to be some kind of search involved to find him.
1: We already know that um, for whatever reason, Boba Fett wasn't going to go straight to Tatooine. Because otherwise, at the end of the Empire Strikes Back, they, they would have just said, right. Okay, let's 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 all go off. You know,
0: Luke had so, said that he that they would meet at the rendezvous point on Tatooine.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think he, I think even Luke says something like, well, "I'll be waiting for your signal." So it's really clear from that dialogue that although Luke, Leia, and the others know that, you know, the FET is obviously going to take Solo to Tatooine eventually, the whole thing is that they want to rescue Han before he gets to Jabba because they realize it'll be much much harder. Ah. to you know, I, I,
0: never really, uh, I never really thought about that. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, that's the sort of in-story rationale. Obviously, the the real reason is because they had three years of comics to fill. And I think that was, you know, I think they did a good job. I think, you know, they're, they're, without Han Solo, they did a good job. Marvel did a good job on that. That was the, That's the best period of the whole run between those two movies, I think.
0: I agree. I agree. I think uh, that period... Um, The Michelinie run has some real high points, but then the Joe Duffy's initial run between picking up with issue 70 and going through the setup uh, with issue 80, I think is um, maybe the best part of her run. Although she has some really good stuff coming up that we'll see as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's still some good stuff to come.
0: That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, The Confessor. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And next time, we'll be discussing annual number three, the Return of the Jedi adaptation, and we'll see what Joe Duffy came up with once she was past the end of the movies and started receiving some very strict guidance from Lucasfilm on what she couldn't, couldn't do. So, we'll be talking about Star Wars numbers 81 through 94. So, I hope to see you then. As always, you can visit us at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation, and I hope you enjoy.